Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, in which we talk with scientists who have made great contributions to their fields, particularly in the biological sciences. Today's interview is with Dr. Daniel Simberloff, who's the Gorehunger Professor of Environmental Studies in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He shared some truly wonderful stories with us today, and so with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. Dr. Simmerloff, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm flattered that you're doing this. Thank you, and thank you for agreeing to do the show. Um, our first question today is, when did you first know that you were interested in a career in the life sciences? You know, that that's an interesting question because when I was a young child, and actually all the while I was growing up, I was very interested in in biology and the living things around me. And beginning at least at the age of four, I was collecting insects, especially beetles. And at the age of four, I started a little club in my neighborhood called the Society of Entomologists with entomologists spelled E-N-T-Y-M-O-L-O-G-I-S-T-S. And I dragooned two neighborhood friends, also age four, one was five, actually. Uh, and, and I was the secretary because I was the only one who could write. <laughs> and we, we, uh, we would go out. And uh, I, I lived in an area in eastern Pennsylvania where there was some farmland and fields and there were uh, uh, woods. And I could, uh, we could go out and we could collect insects. And, and the uh, father of one of these boys got us insect pens and cigar boxes and and this is what we would do and and uh although they dropped out eventually i remain very interested in um uh, in in nature uh, all all the way through um you know through high school um and i i used we moved unfortunately to a, a, a an urban area that didn't have much nature elizabeth new jersey which is the site or was the site of four epa Superfund cleanup sites, uh, which tells you sort of place it is. But I found some woods not too far from there. The main one has since been converted to Keene State College, but at that time it was just a large wooded area, and I, I would go out and look for things like insects and garter snakes, and so I was very interested in this. Um, and I guess I had thought about making it a career. I remember talking to the son of one of my teachers in uh, who and her son had become an ornithologist and he described what I did and I thought well that sounded interesting but then when I got to college I uh, I was sort of seduced away from it into mathematics I I was um, uh, able to get into a, a a series of courses this was at Harvard College for um, uh, students who were really interested in math and had some aptitude, but had gone to poor schools and so didn't know as much as they should. And it was a brilliant series of courses. It was, um, it was spellbinding. It was very hard, but it was, it was just fascinating. And I got very deeply into that and I sort of forgot about it. <laughs> what I would do for a career until uh, my, my junior year in, 
in college, actually. And then then I began to think about it some more. I'm curious, what was the appeal of math? Had that been a, like a, a prior interest in high school or was it, or was it just something that leapt out of you? It, it had been, but my high school was not a good high school and there was no real advanced math. I had a cousin who, a much older cousin who had done some serious math in college and he taught me some things that we weren't learning in high school. But uh, you know, I just, it was aesthetically pleasing and it was exciting to see how you could deduce things from, from other things. And uh, one of the courses in the sequence uh, also talked about applications of apparently pure math. And those were also interesting, but I, I would have to say that the real appeal, there were two real appeals. One was, it was uh, aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> I know that sounds bizarre, but that's the only way I can put it. And the second was, it was really challenging. It was hard, but I could do it. And I, 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 I liked the challenge. And I guess because if I worked hard enough, I could do it. Uh, it, it was gratifying in some way. So it was just a thrilling experience. You know, interestingly, um, a few years ago, when I was at a meeting of the National Academy in Washington, D.C., and that giant auditorium where they hold events like concerts, et cetera, a man walked in, helped by a very old man, helped by a, a woman who was his daughter, and I recognized him immediately as Shlomo Sternberg, who had been one of the professors in this wow. course 50 years ago. It was 50 years after I'd taken the course with him, exactly. And he walked in, and as he walked by me, behind me in the aisle, I, I turned around, I introduced myself, and I said, I was in Math 55 with you 50 years ago when we started to reminisce about Math 11 and Math 55. Um, so that was sort of an, an odd thing uh, and exciting. Um, anyway, uh, you know, but, but by my junior year, I recognized that, <laughs> yes, this was a lot of fun, but I was then taking more advanced math courses, having taken this special sequence. And um, they were interesting, but they weren't uh, as exciting or spellbinding. Furthermore, I recognized that even though, you know, I could do math, there were other people who were much more gifted than I, including a roommate of mine. I did not owe it to humanity to do this, even though I was sure I could do it to an extent that I could have a career doing it. And, and, and here's something interesting. At that time, I was taking a very famous course at Harvard taught by George Wald, who became a Nobel laureate uh, because of his work on the visual pigments, and uh, three assistant professors uh, at Harvard. And Harvard used to have, they abandoned this uh, a number of years ago, they used to have what were called general education courses, gen ed. And at Harvard in those days, remember I entered 1960 and graduated in 64, uh, it, it, you, you could actually, um, you had very few course requirements. 
you could almost take anything, except you have to have a few in the humanities and a few in the social sciences, a few in the natural sciences. And these gen ed courses were designed to fulfill those requirements in a sort of special way, because they were for people that weren't expert in the area, weren't going to major in these things, but 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 were were, were interested in them, and and uh, they seemed to pick really good lecturers to do these because I had several that were really great um, in areas that you know I'll never. And again, <laughs> or have expertise in certainly. Um, but anyway, NatSci five, natural sciences five, taught by George Walls and three assistant professors, was one of these courses, a year-long course. And it it was wonderful. I I, I was loving it. I was loving, of course, the, the labs. Um, but you know, that was the only biology course I'd taken uh, 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 there. And so uh, I was wondering what to do. And I remember sitting at dinner with uh, a group of my classmates in Quincy House at Harvard. All the undergrads live in these different houses on Quincy House, bemoaning my, my uh, situation where I felt I didn't want to go into math, but I didn't know what else to do. I didn't say anything about biology. And one of my, my classmates, I remember this very well, I remember who it was, said, well, you're, you're taking... You're, you're really loving NatSci 5, and you've been talking about it, you know, all all, all year. Why, why don't you look into uh, becoming a biologist? And I said, but I haven't had any biology except for this course for non-majors. And he said, um, you know, you, you, could, you could maybe even get a major in biology with one more year without almost any biology. He apparently was a biology major. Uh, he certainly knew about this. I had no idea. I said, why don't you go over and, and, and talk to them? Why don't you talk to the graduate secretary? And so within a couple of days, I walked over to the bio labs. Um, have you ever been at the bio labs? At, I have not. At Harvard? No. Yeah, it's this wonderful old building with a grand entrance with the bronze rhinoceri, two, one on each side. And at the top, inlaid in the brick, are, are different taxa, you know, of, of animals and plants. I'd never been there. I, I, I hadn't taken a biology course. I walk in there, I, I found the graduate secretary who was, was glad to talk to me. And she listened to my, my tale of, of, of woe <laughs> and said, I think you should talk to Frank Carpenter. Um, and Carpenter was at that time a, a pretty elderly professor, not emeritus. He's, he was a, a leading um, insect paleontologist, paleobiologist. Um, and he taught entomology. He was the main entomologist there at the time. And I, uh, she set me up with a meeting with him within a couple of days, two or three days, and I walked in and laid out my story. He was very intrigued by the fact that I had collected insects as a four-year-old, of course. Um, and um, he said, oh, you know, you could, you could probably major in 
in biology even if you wanted to because you have a year left. Um, and uh, he said also, you know, there's some other requirements like organic chemistry. Uh, uh, but then he said, but you could take that in the summer. Uh, I've been, I'd worked every summer. And um, he said, as it had happened, because of my math, I had all the math that, that they could possibly want. I'd had physics. Um, so I, I had a lot of sciences. Um, the stumbling block was organic, actually, but I could take it in the summer. And um, he said, uh, at that point, why don't you go talk to Ed Wilson? He's very interested in, in mathematics, uh, in ecology and evolution. And, you know, I had never heard of Ed Wilson. And uh, <laughs> I was a math major. <laughs> Uh, it's possible that George Walt had mentioned him or one of the other faculty in that high five. It didn't, it didn't ring a bell right away. But I went to talk to Ed, um, again, set up an appointment, and he was also very encouraging. He said, uh, uh, oh, yeah, you could, you could easily go to graduate school in math. He, he wasn't uh, in biology. He wasn't as concerned... Uh, actually was whether I actually majored in biology right. or not. He, 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 but he encouraged me to think about a career in biology. He did mention that at Harvard, he didn't know about other places, I could probably even get a major in biology with my year left. But, you know, we talked briefly about uh, uh, math and use of math in biology. He explained how he had had a... a, a um, minimal math background, but had been working hard to make up for it because he saw that it was important to his, his work. He talked about ants. And so um, to make a long story short, I, I went back to uh, Frank Carpenter and we laid out a way I could get a biology major. And there was one stumbling block um, I guess they won't take away my undergraduate degree if I say it, but I had to take organic chemistry. And to get into organic, you had to have introductory chemistry. Oh, I'd never had introductory chemistry, but the one really good course I had in high school was introductory chemistry. Plus we had an industrial chemist who was teaching it. He was not like most of the other teachers. He'd come at it after being an, an industrial chemist for a while. It was, it was a difficult, but very good course. And I worked hard at it and I did well. And I thought, you know, how hard can this be if I know chemistry? So I just said I had <laughs> the equivalent of introductory chemistry at some point. And and they let me into the course and I, I took it. I, I was fine. I did very well in it, actually. And so that that uh, senior year, I took some biology courses. And um, that's the summer I took organic. And there I was. So I was ready to go into biology. And I, throughout this time, I talked to uh, Ed Wilson occasionally. And he encouraged me to apply to Harvard. I applied elsewhere also, but he said, really, you should go here. And, and by that time, he'd um, 
told me about, and I actually read the 1963 paper with MacArthur that was you know, about the equilibrium theory, which was the predecessor to the book, which came out in 1967. And uh, so I thought about it and thought about it. And uh, um, he, he was both charismatic and he was talking about really interesting things. And I was learning interesting things now that I was taking biology courses uh, related to some of the things I was talking about. And um, so I decided to do it and I became his student. So that's how I got back into biology. Right. And then, and then I guess moving on to grad school, what were your principal early interests there and, you know, what drove your work in, through that? Yeah, I guess there were two really. One was, uh, I was, was still very interested in mathematics and I was interested in the application of mathematics to you know, biological problems. Um, and related to that, I, I very early uh, learned about computers. Remember, this was only at this time when I entered grad school in 1964. So we did have personal computers, but you know there were mainframes, right. uh, and um, I actually I, I learned quite a bit about them. And I, I took a course my uh, either my senior year in college or my first year in grad school with Bill Bossert, who was a computer one of the first great computer scientists, and I learned a lot about them. And I could see that in addition to the aesthetics of pure math and mathematical models based on on pure math related to biology, that there was um, the possibility of using computers to generate a different kind of model. <clears throat> I was interested in that. And then the third thing was that, uh, you know, of all the biology I had then taken as a senior and, 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 and learned something about in Wald's NatSci 5 course and what I was learning about from all my fellow grad students, I, I really was especially interested in ecology. Uh, I was interested also in evolution, especially as it related to ecology, but th those were my real foci. And so, um, and I told that to Ed, who was perfectly happy with that because that's that was his forward that <laughs> interest. Um, and uh, so, I began looking around for a dissertation problem. I, I should say, you know, this was an incredible period. Here I was, a new graduate student, having had much less biology than all the other grad students. Um, and and I, I was, was meeting these uh, legendary people in the field. I, I, I took my first year a, a, a grad seminar in evolution taught by Ernst Meyer and George Gaylord Simpson. Wow. With roughly 14 students, of whom I was one. Many of them, you know, are famous now. Some of them aren't still alive and others are retired, but, you know, and, and many of them knew a lot and already published stuff. And here I was in this course with George Gaylord Simpson and Ernst Meyer and, uh, we largely discussed topics and papers 
and and Meyer and Simpson would always argue with one another, and then we were we would jump in, and whatever any student would say, if Meyer agreed with it, Simpson wouldn't. I, I mean, I, I think that they really disagreed about a lot of things, but they must have planned this. And we had, you know, they would have visiting people come in and talk to us. Alfred Romer came in and talked to us. Phil Darlington came in and talked to us for two separate times on on biogeography and evolution, basically. So, I mean, this was the kind of thing I was, it, it was in, incredible. But anyway, you know, as all this was going on, I was thinking a lot about uh, what to do for a dissertation. And Ed had very quickly um, given me a couple things to read. Uh, one was the, um, was the uh, paper by Hamilton, W.D. Hamilton on Ken Selection Inclusive Fitness, which Hamilton published in 64. And Ed gave it to me right away uh, when I showed up as a grad student. He, he said, I am paraphrasing here, but he, he, he said, could you, could you check the math and explain certain things to me? There were some aspects of notation he wasn't clear on, although he, he felt he got the general idea. And second, the other thing I remember he said was, if this guy is right, this revolutionizes all our thinking about the evolution of social behavior for Hymenoptera and maybe for many other things. And so I read that. The other thing he gave me to read was um, uh, drafts of the chapters that uh, that he and Robert had written for the book, uh, Theory of Island Biogeography, which was published in 67. Yeah. But they had drafts, actually, much earlier than that. And so I read those. Uh, also with fascination, because, you know, that's really fascinating stuff. You, you could tell by the responsive chord it struck with hundreds of ecologists, you know, as soon as it was published. But anyway, I read it. And so I, I guess there were two things he especially wanted from me out of that. One was, you know, what did I think of it? And second was the chapters by MacArthur, uh, you know, uh, there were three chapters that were largely mathematical. He wanted he wanted another read of it to be sure he understood them. Right. And so, uh, you know, I read I read it, and at one point he called me into his office. We talked pretty regularly, um, and he said, "What do you think?" <laughs> and I remember uh, uh, saying with some trepidation, "You know, well." This is really interesting. I, you know, I loved reading it. I have some comments, and I had written down some comments, but um, and I see that the the basic idea is 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 very logical, and all the things you would say flow from it logically would flow from it. But <laughs> and I said, really, you're not really presenting evidence in this and things that you cite like Krakatau or Ruth Patrick's work, which is, you know, on a, on a artificial islands and, and streams, you, you don't really present evidence that islands really are undergoing the underlying process of occasional 
immigration of new species and occasional extinction on the islands of species that are already there. And so it, it's, it, it's, it's basically a theory and the evidence isn't very strong. It's just consistent with it. He said, um, right. and, and these really are his exact words, well, why don't you, t- why don't you test it? And uh, I said something, now I'm paraphrasing. I remember he said, well, why don't you test it? And I said, well, how? And he said, you know, why don't you find some islands you could, you could, you could look at and somehow remove all the species. And, and, and so I did spend um, that, uh, but part of that year and part of that summer looking at, I, I initially found right away some islands off the coast of Maine, little islands that you could quite easily get to that had lots of beetles, ground beetles, and um, you know many, many species. And I knew how to catch beetles. I knew that from when I was four years old. And um, I thought it might well be possible to eliminate them all by some sort of fumigation or by some other method. And, um, but then when I went back, tried to go back in the winter to see if there was ongoing anything, it was clearly impossible <clears throat> to get to them because they were in the Gulf of Maine. <clears throat> and so, you know, it, you wouldn't be able to do it on a regular basis the way I, I had hoped. You could do it every year, but you'd want to then do it for several years. And so it really, it wasn't quite right. And at that point, he, he told me about these little mangrove islands that he'd seen in Florida Bay, and he said he knew they had a lot of ants on them. And uh, why didn't I go and have a look at them? He didn't know what else was on them, but he was sure there were other things. He knew they had several ant species. And so that's how I found that project. I, I went down to uh, Florida. I found some of them that I could actually wade to from uh, the islands that were right on the overseas highway. I rented a skiffs in a couple places and went out to others. And so I, I found that there were lots of insects or some spiders, there were uh, isopods on some. And so that's, that's how all that began. Now, and for that, um, you were fumigating the islands and kind of seeing what well, first, we had to figure out that's what we wanted to do. Okay, yeah. How, how does that decision make? One of the things that interests me about that is that I've, I've read that it was relatively high risk and that, you know, you don't know necessarily how long it could take for these, you know, islands to be repopulated or for really anything to happen. Good point. I, I, and I thought about that. Uh, and, and Ed, I wouldn't say dismissed my concern, but he, he wasn't as worried about it. I was wondering, I, I was sure eventually they'd be recolonized. And I was sure after a while uh, I, I, that I really could find everything on them before we did this. I spent a lot of time uh, looking and, and, and Ed came down and helped me to make sure that he thought I was looking in the right ways. But I, I had exactly that concern that you're raising. Suppose it took you know 10 years. Um, yeah. I, I suspected some things would probably get there pretty quickly, except on the more distant islands, which, you know, it's a little mangrove tree way out in the water. How, how are they going to get there? I don't, you know, maybe it will take a long time. Um, and so I was concerned about it, but uh, so I recognized it was risky, but it, it was such a cool project. It was a neat theory. And I was getting to look at, at just insects and spiders 
out the wazoo, which I loved, you know, they, all these these cool species. And I was learning a lot about their biology because you do as you look very closely in the field. So I, I, I took the risk, you know, I, I suspect, you know, suppose it had turned out differently and it really did take many years, I'd have gotten something out of it anyway. Sure. Exactly what it would be, I don't know, but it might well have had to do with which ones did get there soon, how they did it, and something about their biology. There were, there, there were so many observations that I made, and I could have made many more that would firm up the biology of these species. But since it, it became apparent within half a year, I'd say, that there was going to be some pretty rapid recolonization. I, you know, I put that aside and focused on the, the recolonization. And, and what kinds of trends did you find then? Well, um, we, we found uh, writ large that the, the result pretty well confirms the theory not only that the, the number of species returned to about what it had been on each of these islands. Um, and by the way, we had a, a control island that we didn't do anything to just to make sure there was nothing else going on. And, and so we found that um, uh, approximately the same number of species returned. There was always some ongoing extinction and ongoing local extinction, ongoing immigration. But uh, the, the number that it got to was uh, or, you know, roughly what it had been before. It took longer to get to that point for the most distant of the islands uh, and less time by far for the one that was closest, which, which was just you know, a few meters from the mainland. But, so all that was consistent with the theory. And the key point that I had been concerned with that, that I had raised in the first place when he said, well, why don't you test it? Was well, is there really short-term turnover? As once things get there, do they really ever go extinct on any regular basis? And, you know, I could tell from the data that they did, that there was a substantial amount of turnover. The, uh, a number of years later, as I thought about it and reanalyzed the data, I recognized that uh, for some of these species, even though they would be present, then absent, then present again, so that it looked like turnover, it wasn't really probably a population process. It may well have been that, you know, there were a few individuals, I haven't find them, they didn't really establish population. And possibly for strong flyers, they may have been parts of more widely ranging populations that we would then call or now call a metapopulation. And they happen not to be at that place at that time. So all of the things that we were terming turnover were not the kind of turnover that the dynamic equilibrium theory posited. But but much of it was. I, I figured out a way to look at the data and knowing enough about the life histories of some of these species to say that for some of these species, they, they were there, they had established substantial populations and they did go extinct. So it, it, it still confirmed the, uh, the theory. I guess the one thing that that 
reconsideration, as well as some other uh, observations other people had made on other systems and, and other thinking I had done led me to was that um, it, it, it could well be that equilibrium theory as originally conceived uh, it doesn't really apply to all islands or doesn't apply much to all islands and, and probably for extremely distant oceanic islands, for example, um, you know, there's probably so little immigration that you couldn't even see it. And once a species gets there, it's not so clear that it won't stay there for a very long time. The paleo literature certainly shows that for birds. Um, and for islands that are very near the mainland, depending on the taxon you're looking at, again, you might just be looking at parts of widely ranging populations rather than the population as envisioned by the original theory. But, but so it has a more limited domain in terms of its direct application and predictions. And then moving on postgraduate school, how do you find yourself in that first teaching position? This was so easy. I can't, when I tell people about that, and I tell most of my younger colleagues this, and, and, and they, they're, they're staggered. So I get my degree in 1968, okay? And uh, it's clear that I'm going to get it then. Uh, you know, I defended my dissertation. Everything was going well. The, the work was already well known, even though we hadn't published it. Um, and, and by the way, I'd never published anything at that point. I, of course, I've published many papers in my in my life, but it wasn't then like now where graduate students have all these side projects and they publish papers, some of which are really great, even before they're on the right. job market. Uh, and so I hadn't done that. I did have a couple of side projects, one of which I subsequently published, but it took me about two more years. Uh, anyway, um, so I had to think about what to do. And the most obvious thing to do because uh, uh, partly because I really didn't have that much of a, a biology background and, and I felt that it would be good to get insights from different sorts of biologists even though I'd been exposed to these titans of ecology and evolution at Harvard and um, uh, so the idea would be a postdoc and uh, Ed and I talked about it, and he uh, he thought that would be a great idea also. Um, but this was during the Vietnam War. It was right during the Vietnam War, okay? And there were, there were several other things going on. First of all, I had, uh, I, I, I had, grown up from the uh, sixth grade on in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is a working class uh, city. And, um, and I, I went to a high school that didn't have that many people go on to college, that sort of things, very blue collar place uh, with a very quote, patriotic draft board and a very patriotic citizenry. And the second thing was my younger brother, who was uh, two and a half years younger than I, had uh, 
run off to Canada to avoid the draft. And so I had gotten deferments, you know? Yeah. But uh, so then when it came time to figure out what to do next, my draft board actually told me, I, I talked to someone from the draft board that I had to get a teaching job. I had actually to do teaching and they'd, they'd have to know that I was teaching and uh, it would have to be certified and it couldn't just be one of these and postdoc was clearly out. And there was even some thought that I might be drafted. And it said, oh, don't worry. I could arrange for you to be an, an army entomologist and no one has done the answer to the Mekong Delta. He was serious about this. That's, I mean, it's not that he wanted me to be drafted, right? but but he, he really thought, well, you know, you can make the best of a bad situation, do the answer to the Mekong Delta. Um, I wasn't, well, anyway, so I couldn't, I couldn't possibly uh, take a postdoc. So then I had to look around and think about jobs. And unlike what you do today, I didn't look at advertisements. I didn't know if them science must have still must have had in those days as advertisement. I could go back and look at back issues. You know, I think I I, I remember uh, it said, well, you know, where would you like to go? And um, I said, well, well, it would have to be somewhere I could actually. I wanted to continue work on the mangrove islands. I had several ideas, good ones, and it would have been a shame not to pursue them as well as to do further work on the fumigated islands to, to look at some of the other things that had come up. And so uh, I said, well, you know, I don't know, but this is, I, I would like to be, you know, someplace that had a serious graduate program and someplace where I could work year round and then access somehow to the mangrove islands. And he said, well, there's two places that came to, to mind. One was the University of Texas, and there were a number of, of older grad students whom I knew when I was a younger grad student who had jobs at the University of Texas. Um, and he said, another one is Florida State University. He didn't say University of Florida, he said Florida State. And he had a friend there, Bob Godfrey, and he said it's 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 a newer, much newer university, and he was right. It was actually a woman's college up until 1949, mm -hmm. and then it became a university. And he said they they seem to have, uh, you know, recruited lots of good people, but they don't seem to have a huge amount of ecology. <laughs> but it, he he was very impressed that they had very quickly assembled a group of really good uh, scientists in in the biological science department. So he told me about those two places. And I said, all right, well, they sound good. <laughs> and Ed contacted them and said he had this student and et cetera. And they both invited me to interview. I, I guess they made up the job. I don't, they weren't advertising the job. So I went to both of them and uh, I, I, you know, I met lots of people. I gave, gave seminars um, and I, uh, I decided to go to Florida State. There were clearly, it was clearly much more ecology and evolution at Texas. But uh, A, I like Tallahassee. B, that the people there seemed very sincere about wanting to build up ecology in a hurry and that, that I would have a big part of that. They were even going to advertise a position. 
uh, in ecology. And, you know, the people they had there were largely uh, who did anything with ecology, marine, mm -hmm. marine people. And they, 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 they recognized they wanted to expand that. And, um, and I liked it. And they, they seemed, they were clearly very good scientists. And they said they'd support me. And so that's what I did. But think about that. That's how I got my first position. Ed Wilson told me where I should look, and then he arranged for me to go have interviews. No, that's a, th th I mean, that's a rare one. I don't know how rare, I, I don't know enough. My, my trajectory to that point was so bizarre relative to uh, most other people that go into biology. I don't know quite how rare it was, but, you know, in those days, uh, it, it, it wasn't quite like, it wasn't at all like now. That's all I can say. I don't remember students uh, who were good students panicking about whether they'd be able to get the next postdoc, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So things are quite different. Yeah. So uh, you, you get there and you're in Tallahassee and you're able to just continue your work. Yes, I was. It, it worked quite well. I um, was able to continue my work in the Florida Keys. I was able to get NSF grants to do it. The early work had been funded largely by NSF grants to Ed, uh, one big one especially. Well, big in those days. My God, now it would be considered pitiful. But <laughs> some, something in the range of $65,000, something like that. But um, anyway, I, I, I was able to pursue the work um, with two particular ideas that I had. Uh, one of them arose from the theory of island bi biogeography and, and my having read and thought about it by then I'd read much more. And that was the species area relationship. Here is one of the oldest known ecology laws, sort of. And uh, one of the ways in which the equilibrium theory made a big splash was it proposed a totally new explanation for species area relationship. Up until that time, people sort of assumed, beginning even in the late 19th century, that um, bigger places had more habitats and each habitat had more species and its own species, some species specific about habitat. And so the bigger places had more species. And the equilibrium theory said nothing at all about that. It said, well, the populations are bigger on bigger sites, smaller and smaller sites. And so they're going to go extinct more rapidly on small sites. And so that's part of that cross curves diagram that's in every textbook right. in ecology now. And that was in the theory of island biogeography book. Um, and almost all of the initial outbursts of outpouring of literature on the equilibrium theory after Robert and Ned published their book uh, you know, purporting to apply the theory to some taxon or other in some set of islands, uh, just showed that there was a species area relationship. But that doesn't, as I had said earlier, that doesn't really, it's just consistent with the theory of ion biogeography. It doesn't really support the idea that it's a dynamic equilibrium. And I, I recognized uh, very early, as I was you know, working in these mangrove islands, that there were bigger ones, there were smaller ones. And unlike other islands, they were really homogeneous in that a bigger one, unless it had land, 
as long as it was all intertidal, a bigger one was basically the same as a smaller one, except there was more of it. So, so you weren't really adding habitats as you got bigger and bigger ones until you came to where you were adding land and other plants. These are all red mangrove, just red mangrove. Right. And so uh, by the time I went to Florida State in 68, I had formulated this idea of um, removing parts of mangrove islands. So I'd census a bunch of islands. I'd keep uh, one as a control. And the others, I would remove part of the island. So it'd be the same islands with the same habitats, but less area. And then I would do it a second time for some of them. So I have three points on the species area curve. And, uh, you know, amazingly, that's not anything you've asked me about yet, but um, even the uh, original work with Ed was sort of controversial because, you know, we fumigated islands and killed all these insects. And, you know, some people didn't like that. But sure. here I'm, I'm cutting down half of a mangrove island. You can't do that now. No, it wouldn't be popular. It's a protected species in Florida. Maybe you could do it somewhere, but um, no one even thought about it. I didn't think about it much because, you know, there were a gazillion mangrove islands and all the fringing mangrove swamps. I wasn't going to remove the island. I was going to remove part of the island. And um, just as Ed had gotten uh, more or less informal permission from a friend of his in the Department of Interior to, to do the fumigation work, and I had gotten permission from Jack Watson at the Great White Hair National Wildlife Refuge in Big to do some of it. For this, I just went over to Jack Watson, who was still the ranger in charge of the Great White Hair National Wildlife Refuge, which was where most of the work was going to be done. And I said, hey, I want to do this. And he said, fine. And I remember going and talking to um, Bill Robertson, who's a park biologist, uh, about doing that for two of the islands I wanted to use that were they were in Florida Bay, but technically in the uh, Everglades National Park. And he had sort of been our conduit to the higher levels of the Department of Interior before. And uh, he, th he said, sure. <laughs> and so I did it. Um, and I got an NSF grant to do that. And I did it. And it, it was very interesting. I mean, in a very general way, it did show that even with just one habitat and with no changes in habitats, drastically changing, or not even drastically, changing the area of, of a site actually does reduce the number of species. And it's it's very consistent because it was still ongoing turnover uh, with, with the ideas of the equilibrium theory. So I, I was able to do that as my first big project uh, while I was an assistant professor at Florida State. And uh, all the while I was doing that, I was planning the next project. Uh, and uh, by that time, in 1974, uh, Jared Diamond, and in 1975, John Terborg, and also Ed, along with Edwin Willis, had uh, published, all three of them had published very similar papers applying the theory of island biogeography to refuge design. Uh, and they had this series of rules. Um, only 
one of which directly followed from the theory of island biography. That was the first rule, bigger refuge, better than a smaller refuge. The others made all kinds of other assumptions that were not really part of the theory, but one that attracted a huge amount of attention and was included in the world's uh, uh, conservation strategy of the IUCN soon thereafter was one big refuge is better than a group of small refuges of equal area. And I knew that it didn't follow from the equilibrium theory. I thought it might be right or it might be wrong, but it wasn't completely clear to me that it would even be true for mangroves. And I, I, I realized as, you know, that I could do this experimentally just as I did the species area uh, work because I could take a large mangrove island, I could census it, and then I could turn it into four or two small islands by cutting channels through it of a few feet wide so that they were separate from then on and looking to see what happened. And, and I did that um, and published that paper. And the result was it wasn't at all clear that for that system, a group of small islands wasn't as good as or better than a bigger island. That, of course, occasioned a huge amount of controversy and led to the, what became known as the Sloss debates in the large or several small and then, you know, with, with colleagues and students, I gathered lots of other data from other systems that, you know, just by looking in the literature that showed that it's not really a rule. It may make good sense in many circumstances, but it might not in others. And, you know, so for, you know, 10 or 15 years, that, that was a, a hot debate. But that experimental work that we did, I did, that, that was really cool. That was my second project at Florida State. It got an NSF grant to do that also. Um, and, um, but soon after I got to Florida State, I, uh, I also started looking around there. And, uh, you know, that's an area I had not had been. It's a really beautiful area, the big bends of Florida. And I, I fairly quickly discovered the uh, Tall Timbers uh, uh, Research Station which is uh, just north of Tallahassee, just south of the Georgia state line. And it, it was known at that time, and still is known most, I guess, as a fire ecology research station. It was a big, big chunk of land with lots of beautiful habitat um, in various stages of old growth and second growth, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I just spent a lot of time walking around there looking at things. And then another piece of good luck happened. Um, you know, my entire career actually has been uh, driven by tremendously fortuitous happenings that were not my own doing, but I just happened to be in the right place and happened to meet people that really... Uh, had, had great ideas and were, were wonderful. And not long after I got to Florida State, I, um, my closest colleague there was Don Strong, who remains a very good friend. And, and he and I did a lot of work because he's now at UC Davis. He left Florida State well before I did. But uh, he had a friend, Paul uh, Opler, and Paul Opler uh, visited. And Paul Opler works mostly on leaf mining insects. 
And, uh, you know, I knew there were leaf mining insects, but I didn't know much about them. And uh, he was he visited Tallahassee and he talked a lot about leaf mining insects. And uh, what I hadn't realized was that there were so many different species and they could even be on the same tree and maybe even the same leaf and et cetera, et cetera. So that led me to thinking about trees as islands. And, and, uh, and Paul showed me how, hey, you could identify leaf miners without ever seeing them because their minds are completely distinctive. So they leave this, this trace. And that led me to do a lot of work at Tall Timbers, which had all these trees. And there were several different species of oaks. And each oak had its own complement of leaf miners and it had several. And I could look at whether isolated trees had fewer leaf miners than trees that were fewer species. And I could look at uh, you know how many species were on each tree, how many were on each species. And I, I recruited over the years, several graduate students, very good ones who, uh, who did their doctoral dissertations on leaf mining insects on oaks at tall timbers. And that, you know, that led me to spend a huge amount of time looking at leaf miners with them and learning more and more and more about leaf mining insects. So that was another stroke of very good luck meeting Paul Oppler and, and it led to a lot of, of very good research. Um, yeah, so um, when does invasion biology come in? Yeah, invasion biology. I began to think about it in the 1970s because, you know, all, all of my work really had been focused in one way or another, the community level and which species are found together and which ones aren't. Uh, and even thinking about equilibrium turnover, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, there was all this liter theoretical literature on limiting similarity, including classic paper by uh, Levins and MacArthur's and which species could or couldn't. And there, there was other discussion uh, about uh, which species could fit together or which wouldn't or how they'd affect one another, um, but not focused on invasions. And I began to think about that. And I, I, I realized um, early in the 70s even that, um, very early in the 70s, that you know, if the equilibrium theory is of general importance or generally depicts the way things are in nature in many areas, then an invasion should lead to an extinction. And so, um, in the very early 1980s, I, I, I did, a, at that time, exhaustive literature search. This was before I could do literature searches like you do now. There's no web of science, no Google Scholar, but I, I was sort of a literature hound. And I did a, a lot of work uh, on invasions, uh, looking for literature reports of invasions and what happened. And at that time, I found um, very few cases in which an uh, invasion of a species, even uh, some consequential ones, led clearly to an extinction other than by changing the habitat in some dramatic way, like goats denuding St. Helena, for example. Uh, 
Um, and I, I wrote a little paper about that in 1981. So that that was part of how I got into it. I have to say that when I was uh, at Harvard, you know, I spent a lot of time in Ed's office and library, and um, I was looking at things, and there was a book by Charles Elton that, that looked at it, Ed told me it's a really interesting book. It was Elton's 1958 book, um, The Ecology of Invasions by Animals and Plants. And it was based on these uh, three BBC radio broadcasts he'd given uh, called something like Balance or Balance in Nature. I forget the exact title. I could find it. And and so it was, it was aimed at a popular audience, but it had lots of really interesting information. It's often said to be the sort of the founding document of modern invasion biology. It isn't. It, it wasn't much cited, and it didn't really lead at that time to uh, you know, people viewing invasions as a phenomenon. There, there were lots of people looking at particular invasions, but each one was sort of a one-off. There was this invasion here, this invasion there, there's water hyacinth in Florida, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Fire ant would be you know, one that was already underway. Um, but um, it didn't really lead to the founding of a science. That didn't happen until the 1980s with the SCOPE project on biological invasions. But at that time, almost everyone involved or many people involved in the SCOPE project, and I, I was one of them, remembered we'd read Elton's book, you know, and it came back to us and he said all these things. He really foresaw a lot of what we were discussing, not all of it, but very much of it. So anyway, I had read the book. And so I, you know, I had, I had thought about the things he talked about. I knew about the spread of the Japanese beetle. I knew about the spread of the starling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, that, that was there in my mind. And, uh, you know, after I published that paper in the early 1980s, uh, where I said there didn't seem to be much evidence from the equilibrium theory that invasions cause extinctions, I, I kept thinking about this issue. And um, then another fortuitous thing happened. Uh, again, this sort of I say, I was very fortunate in my whole life, but when I was a grad student at Harvard, one of the other grad students, one of the most memorable was a guy named Bob Jenkins, who was a grad student of Ernst Myers. Uh, Bob died a few years ago. Um, but anyway, Bob um, was a very forbidding character. I don't know if he'd been a football player. He sure looked like it. He sounded like it. Very, very sure of himself, um, but really smart and really driven. And he was driven by conservation. Uh, well, you know, I was always interested in conservation. I, I always, I always had been. I remember, uh, you know, uh, I read uh, Rachel Carson's, you know, book, Silent Spring, when it first came out, and you know, I was staggered and depressed. I. I, I knew about extinctions. I, you know, I, uh, it, it, conservation wasn't a very big deal in 1970. Some people were sounding the alarm. Peter Raven is an obvious one, but um, but you know, it was it was an issue, and I was very concerned with it. And so Bob Jenkins, 
uh, eventually became the science director for the Nature Conservancy. And uh, Jenkins uh, wanted the, the, the Board of Nature Conservancy is made up of the National Board of Nature Conservancy. Uh, at that time, it was made up of about 30 people. Uh, and, and they were all very interested in conservation, but very few of them were biologists. There were actually only three or four. Uh, and most of them uh, came from law or business, or they were wealthy uh, and, and interested in hunting, but also interested in conservation for you know, that kind of connection. Uh, but there were very few scientists. And Bob was trying to turn the conservancy into a, a really science-based conservation organization. Uh, by, uh, and and he, he was running into some headwinds. Partly he felt because there just weren't enough board members that understood what he was talking about. And, and, but he was right. He was always sure he was right. And most of the time he was, actually. And so one thing he did was, um, you know, he, he knew my work and what I'd been doing, and I'd been working on, on, on communities, and he knew I was very interested in conservation because, you know, we talked about it. We were not the closest of friends, but we'd been in touch. He said, how would you like to be on the Board of Nature Conservancy if, if this could be arranged? And I said, wow. I said, you know, I, I, I'd be glad to. I, ho I hope I could really contribute. You know, I knew that I couldn't contribute money <laughs> and I didn't have connections in government or anything, but he felt it would be really important. And so he actually did arrange that I was elected uh, to the board, nominated and elected to the board of the uh, Nature Conservancy. And so the Nature Conservancy at that time, probably still the case, had uh, four meetings a year of the board. Uh, usually three of them were in the DC area in, in, uh, you know, where, in Arlington where the headquarters was. And the fourth was usually in some other area where there was an active chapter. And we would all assemble these four times a year. And at each meeting, among other things they would do, um, usually a land steward from somewhere or other. And if it was at one of the chapter areas that wanted us, it would usually be, it would always be a land steward from that area. Otherwise they'd bring someone in from some, and to, to tell us what they were doing. And they would of course talk about their challenges. And it became immediately clear to me, just immediately, that almost every challenge they were talking about has to do with introduced species, <laughs> mostly introduced plants and how they had to, to work really hard to contain introduced plants. The technology wasn't great. It was expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a few involved introduced animals, uh, but, but most were introduced plants. So meeting after meeting, and not only that, uh, because I was one of only, I think, four biologists on the board at that time, and, and, and the, the main one working in areas related to what they were doing, um, that they would always come and talk to me, you know, in coffee breaks, and they'd be, they'd be there at the meeting, uh, you know, when you'd have time, when you'd, I'd go to dinner with them. And so I, I would ask them to talk more about that, or they would volunteer because it was much on their mind and they wanted me to tell the board they got to do something about it. And so I learned pretty rapidly that not only were um, invasions sort of a, a 
tool to test ecological theory, but they are always a, also a, a really important conservation concern in many, many different areas. And so those two things, you know, sort of came together to me by the early and mid 1980s. And that's when I devoted, started to devote almost all of my research effort and writing to that. I was a participant in that SCOPE project. The SCOPE project, by the way, is largely, um, uh, that was engineered by Hal Mooney. Hal Mooney uh, is really the one who, Hal Mooney and some South Africans first arranged for a SCOPE they call them working groups then. Now it's, they call them uh, workshops. Now they call them working groups. But they arranged for a scope project on the problems facing Mediterranean ecosystems. And it was held in South Africa in the early 1980s. I wasn't, I wasn't, part, of, wasn't part of that. But it, it became obvious to the participants, including Mooney, Dave Richardson was there, among others that, you know, most of the problems people from all these different Mediterranean systems were talking about were invasions. And so they brought to the scope governing council. Well, it was the governing council of ICSU, the scope assigned to committee on problems of the environment. And that was under the umbrella of ICSU. So that they brought to that governing board a proposal to have a longer series of workshops on invasions in Mediterranean ecosystems. And that board said, well, that sounds interesting and good, but it should not just be on invasions in Mediterranean type ecosystems, it should be on invasions if it's a problem of the environment. Um, and so that's how that project, the scope project on, on invasions was born. And, and it was Hal Mooney that brought it to them. And he became the, uh, I forget the exact term, but he, he was, not the director, but he was the the organizer for it. And, you know, so it held initially a series of in-country workshops, one of which uh, was held at a Silomar. And that one was um, eventuated in 1986 book, Invasions of, of uh, North America and Hawaii. And I, I was part of that. Um, I, I have one of the first two or three papers in the book. <laughs> and it was great, you know? You're sitting there at a Silmar with all these really bright people, all of whom had worked on some sort of invasion somewhere, and um, uh, many different perspectives and angles. It was just fantastic. And uh, there were also workshops in other places. Uh, you know, there was one in the UK, there, there was um, one in the Netherlands, et cetera, et cetera. There were about six or seven. And then uh, towards the nominal end of the three or four years of the SCOPE project, it was decided that they needed a, uh, a final meeting of people from all these areas. Like, what have we learned from all of these? And because the South Africans had played such a key role in setting up uh, the initial project and had, um, had also had their own workshop and that day of, of, all, of all nations, they were one of the ones that had the, 
the most research ongoing activity on invasions, the idea was to hold it there. And a few of us complained about it because it was South Africa. And um, uh, some of the se senior people who had set it up, didn't, they, they wanted to hold it there because of all the South Africans had done to that date. And so uh, we prevailed on them, I prevailed on them actually, to contact Desmond Tutu and ask what he thinks. Because you know, the biologists weren't the ones that, that had caused apartheid. And I, I knew for sure that at least one of them was very opposed to apartheid. And I'll never forget, Tutu sent back, so I, Hal wrote to him, I believe, Hal Mooney. He wrote back, it was a one-line response. Well, two lines. One was, they are murdering children. And uh, the second one was something like, you know, may you bear, I'll bear all this in mind, something like that. And so it was moved to Hawaii. Right. And, uh, and the South Africans came. There were, there were several South Africans there. We held a summary conference in Hawaii, and I was part of that also. And, and that eventuated in the book that was published in 1989 called something, I forget the name of it, but that and the, and the North America and Hawaii volume were very widely read, very widely. And that, that was edited, the, uh, the North American Hawaii one, the editors were Mooney and Drake. Jim Drake was a postdoc of Mooney's. He became a faculty member at the University of Tennessee and was eventually my colleague. And then the 1989 Global Synthesis volume was uh, Drake et al. And Hal was one of the editors, there were about five or six editors from all the world. And both of those books were very widely read. And that, that plus the whole scope projects were kicked off invasion biology. And again, I, I was at that Hawaii meeting and I met other people, not just from North America, <laughs> uh, you know, some of whose work, most of them, I'd read their work, but I hadn't ever met them. And they, you know, we had hours and hours talking about our issues. And so lots and lots to think about. And so that, that, that scope project, uh, uh, you know, plus my work with the Conservancy and meeting all those land stewards, plus uh, my interest in the 70s and testing a theory or more than one theory, limiting similarity and also equilibrium theory by using invasions. That's where it led me into invasions as a main focus of my research. That's interesting. Do you think that, um... Have you felt that we've lost anything in sort of the the COVID era of not being able to do these face to face types, you know, workshops, meetings, working groups? Do you think it's a hindrance that we're all online? Yes, I do. I, I do. It, it it's not totally crippling, and of course we can go online uh, to conferences, uh, and, and and we can get a lot from doing that. But we we lose a huge amount by not actually being at meetings and being able to run from session to session and talk to people and, and get tips on the next session to go to. And um, that that's really very simulating stuff, not only for graduate students, but for the, the most senior of faculty like me. And 
And yet at my age, it, it, it would be very dangerous to fly. I think maybe being at the meetings, I'm giving my very first in-person lecture in two years, the day after tomorrow. Oh, wow. Because I can, because I can drive to it. You know, so do we lose anything from COVID? So with respect to, um, you know, conferences, we lose that. And, and sometimes it's terribly important. And I'll, I'll give you a really good example that struck me. And that is, there was going to be two years ago, well, a year and a half ago, the very first Pan-African Conference on Invasions. It would have South Africans, but it wasn't dominated by South Africans. It was being held in Senegal, and it had many Africans from French Africa and from other parts of Africa and people from Europe. It was going to be in Senegal, and I was going to give a, a keynote address, and I was planning on going. And of course, it was going to be in September, not last September, but September before that. Couldn't do it because of that. And so they put it off and they finally were able to hold it um, uh, this, this past, past, I forget the exact date, it was in December. And it, it had to do as a hybrid. And, and it was very sad. I had been immensely excited to go to that conference because I would meet people. I, I met, I meet some of them are used to at conferences like IPES working groups or occasionally at other conferences. But many of them um, uh, don't go to conferences, many people in Africa, including people doing really good work. And many of them are basically doing managerial work and have so much of it to do that publishing isn't their main thing and yet they really know what they're doing and some of them have really interesting research to talk about here i was going to be able to go to senegal and talk to them and and learn who they are many of my and read papers by them and and all that went by the wayside and so there there were a few of the africans were in a room in senegal i would say 20 of them and the europeans didn't go um and I don't, I don't know if anyone else was coming. There was one other person coming from North America who didn't go. I, I couldn't fly. It would just be too dangerous. And and obviously other people made exactly the same calculation. And the and the uh, Senegalese understood that and they planned. So it was a hybrid. Yeah. But I, I'd lost, the, you know, I heard interesting talks, but I'd lost what would have been, for me, the most important part of that which would have been uh, getting to talk person to person with people doing important invasion work that I just don't know anything about or know very little. And the other point I'd like to make is you asked about conferences, but there's also the aspect of, of um, going places and giving seminars or having seminar speakers come to your place. I, I, I used to do a lot of that. And since the pandemic, I've given a number of talks by Zoom at universities. But what you miss, and, and I realized this right away as I started doing this, um, you know, it's nice not to have to travel. It saves a lot of time. I don't like traveling. I really don't. But uh, what you miss by not going to these places, what do you do when you go give a talk at an, another university? They set you up to meet the grad students mostly. 
the grad students interested in the kind of thing you're interested in and what you know some faculty but but that's what we do and that's what other places do and and you know you meet people that you otherwise wouldn't know about all doing interesting research related to what you're interested in and so you make these contacts and you learn about interesting stuff and online that doesn't work a few places do still set up meeting times and and you do that and it helps but but it's 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 at most you know about one third of the contacts that you would make actually going to these places so uh, the pandemic has taken a, a big hit and for me even though you know many people are acting like it's over uh i, I have very good reason to think that I shouldn't be flying yet. The next big meeting I know for sure that I'm going to, and it'll be the first meeting I go to long time is the ESA meeting, Ecological Society of America in Montreal, because I can drive there. It takes a while, but I can do it. I'm not so much worried about meetings. I'm worried about the planes. And I have very good reason to be worried about it. I take antibody tests, so I know how well or poorly the vaccines and boosters are working and I, I'll be 80 years old in a, you know, in a month. So there's an issue. So there's that about the pandemic. And, and I, I believe that's it's affected not only me, but my colleagues in similar ways. And it surely has affected graduate students. For, for many graduate students, it's cut out part of their field season. For one of my, you asked about my current work and I'll get to that. For one of, one of them. One of my then current pieces of work was a series of research projects on the impact of the hemlock we adelgid on hemlocks. Uh, and we have a big, had a big field site in Western North Carolina. It's managed by NC, NC State and also some field sites in Tennessee. And one of my current doctoral students was part of that project working on, especially on the beetles introduced to control them. And uh, she couldn't do it for a long time. She could not have permission to cross, cross state lines, even though that part of North Carolina is much closer than many parts of Tennessee. There was that. Secondly, there were certain other issues of safety. I mean, even if she could get permission, it wouldn't be safe. So she had to pivot and change her, the, her entire the entire nature of, of her doctoral dis dissertation. Wow, that's got to be incredibly difficult. Um, I guess all this pandemic talk kind of brings us to, um, you know, one of the questions we always ask toward the end of these interviews, which is, um, what are you working on right now? Uh, several projects. Probably my, my biggest project is, I've been working for a number of years on, on a monster book. And the book was originally on the history of invasion biology or invasion science, as it's often well known. When did it begin? How did it develop? Uh, you know, the role of Elton. What happened between Elton and Scope? What did Scope do? What's happened since then? Um, but as I started that project, I realized that it really uh, made no sense to write about to, to come up with a history of that without having a history of invasions themselves. When did invasions <laughs> begin? When did people first realize there were invasions? 
When did people realize that some invasions might be causing problems, whether they introduced them deliberately or whether they recognized that they were somehow got to the place? When did they realize they caused problems? When did they first think about what they might do about them? How did they go about it? How did it integrate or not integrate ultimately in the 19th century, late 19th century with the beginnings of the field of ecology, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a great big project and I've worked um, really diligently on it, but uh, because I'm, I'm still active, I'm not an emeritus professor, it's taken longer than I thought, but I, I do finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's been a huge, huge project. And I, 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 I think it'll, it will see the light of day. And I, I think I'm the right person to do it. And uh, I, I would feel that I had somehow failed if I didn't do this because I can, and I really feel I understand this stuff. I have other projects with, with my colleague, Tony Ricciardi at uh, McGill University. I have been looking at the concept of invasional meltdown, which, uh, uh, you know, I, I made up the term with, with my student, Betsy Von Holly, when we were in ENSYS uh, working group <laughs> years ago, we published a paper on meltdown. Actually, the term, I, we, I didn't invent it. Peter Kariva gave it to me. We did all the work where it was, and I, I'm not good at titles, and Peter is a master of titles, and I, we said, hey, you know, look what we found, how introduced species can facilitate one another and make all the difference between s surviving and whether they have an impact, et cetera. Uh, and he said, well, invasional meltdown, and so we call it invasional meltdown. But anyway, you know, since then, it's been a fairly prominent topic in the field and Tony and I have um, been amassing data on, um, on, on apparent invasional meltdown in many, many different systems. Uh, he first began to think about it with respect to all of his empirical work in the Great Lakes. And I began to think about it when Betsy and I began to do that work, but I think about it a lot with respect to insects and plants, but also other things. And, we, we have an, an idea for sort of an expanded theory or expanded framework in which to consider invasional meltdown. That, that takes a fair amount of uh, our time. And I've also gotten involved. I, I keep telling you about how I've had these fortuitous meetings with people. And one way that I've been incredibly lucky is through the years, I've had these um, wonderful scientists asked to be my students, or in some cases, postdocs. I mean, they just show up. It's not that I have found them. Some I found, but but some just show up. And um, uh, in any event, um, that's that's happened uh, over and and over again. And uh, one of these wonderful students that actually, you know, wrote to me and said, hey, can I be your student? Is a, uh, is a student now here at Tennessee. Her name is Vedika Holtwiesen. She's a, she's, a, she's a U.S. citizen, born in the U.S., but of Dutch 
heritage. She speaks several languages. Dutch, Dutch is one. <laughs> but in any event, she's a dynamo who has worked a huge amount in her um, master's work on invasions into Midway. And she's been especially interested in the mouse invasion in Midway because the mice are beginning to attack seabirds there. And as you know, on Gough and Marion Island, where there were never rats, but there are mice, especially on Gough, there's a lot of research on how they've suddenly, well, not suddenly, but they eventually started eating seabirds and the huge impacts having just like rats. And I uh, knew about many cases that I garnered from the literature in which as rats are progressively eradicated from more and more islands, bigger and bigger islands, because of improved technology, a number of cases, mouse populations have exploded and they're having big impacts, but the impacts aren't known, plus they hadn't been studied because in several of these island cases, people didn't even know house mice were there. They remove rats and suddenly they explode from house mice. So there's not been much study of their impacts except on places like Gough where there have only been mice, and it's very obvious now that they're attacking birds. So Vidika has taken uh, uh, upon herself as a doctoral project the impact of um, mice on, in general, especially on seabirds, but but in general, what other impacts they have, and uh, th through gut content analysis, but especially stable isotope analysis which is something, you know, I've read about, only one of my students ever done it before, but, and now there's compound specific stable isotope analysis, which will permit a, a you know, a much better understanding of the exact uh, role of, of mice. And so she's been gathering mouse um, tissue, mostly hairs from, from all over and doing stable isotope analysis. And I've, I've been, you know, doing some of that. And I've been doing a huge amount of reading on mouse impacts and on what we can learn from both gut contents and stable isotope work. So that, that takes a fair amount of my time now. Those are, those are the main things. There are others, but those are main things. And I teach a course. Every year I teach a course for um, aimed at seniors, but there are always a few grad students, a few underclassmen in um, invasion biology. I'm teaching it right now. So yesterday I gave a lecture, and tomorrow I'll give, not yesterday, I gave a lecture last Thursday, and tomorrow, Tuesday, I'll give lectures, means Tuesday and Thursday. And, um, you know, I, I work hard to keep updating that course, because it's a very rapidly moving field. You think once you write away, it's not like, it's not like teaching, you know, calculus, you know, where once you write the lectures, that's it, because the field is incredibly rapidly moving. So um, the lecture that I'm going to be giving tomorrow is on, uh, I've been talking about management of invasions. And the lecture tomorrow is going to be on biological control. And you know, there's a field that's both controversial and very important with a lot of triumphs and a lot of failures and some disasters and, and a lot of ongoing work, you know? So I had spent a lot of time, uh, I'm not actually quite finished, <laughs> updating what I've said, changing it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The next lecture I give then will be Thursday. 
and that that doesn't take much updating because it's about the history of the fields. And there are a few newer findings that I've made as part of my research for the book. So there'll be some changes. But then soon after that, I'm going to be talking about all the molecular methods that are being proposed and a few of them implemented to deal with invasive species. And, um, you know, that's, that's being updated on a monthly basis almost. So I was looking over a few days ago what I said last year, and I'm going to it's, I'm totally rewriting it. I mean, it'd be very different. So that also takes a certain amount of time. <laughs> I can imagine. I wish I were sitting in on some of those. Um, you've been very generous with your time, and I, I don't want to take up too much more. But I, if I can ask you one last question. Sure. When you're talking to grad students today, um, what kind of advice do you give them uh, for you know charting out their careers and, and staying active and you know and vital and working um, and in being engaged for such a long period of time? Um, I, I do talk to many new grad students and to some undergraduates come and talk to me about what, what should they do. Um, first of all, uh, a number of the undergrads who come to me uh, are, are, are very devoted to conservation. They often are involved in on-the-ground conservation volunteer projects, and they want to know, uh, you know, what should they do in graduate work that would make the biggest impact. And I always tell them that unless they're really, really devoted to detailed scientific research, the biggest impact they can make is go to law school, become environmental lawyers, and then, you know, become really active in NGOs that are working for conservation and environmentalism. Uh, But if they're really very, very devoted to doing biology, I, uh, I, we, we talk about like, you know, what area of biology and, uh, and, and then we talk about potential places they might go. And I, I always tell them that the most important thing is to find, uh, uh, you know, people whose work you've read that seems very interesting and important to you. And it's the kind of work you might like to do and look into that person's program, the university, and, 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 and you know, write an exploratory letter. When graduate students um, come to me, um, you know, they've already committed that they're going to be working, in my case, in ecology and, 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 and evolutionary biology. I'm in an EEB department. Uh, and so we're normally talking about, um, what would be a, a great uh, uh, dissertation topic? And so we talk about you know their their interests and and what they like doing, in some detail, and and you know what they ultimately uh, hope to do. And I'll get to that in a moment. But then the other thing that we talk about is hey, it is extremely important that you pick a topic such that if it doesn't work out the way you think it will, you will still have an interesting project because it's not going to work out the way you think it will. And I give them some examples from my own <laughs> experience and they, they take it to heart. And if they don't, and they come back to me with an idea, I think about that and I say, hey, suppose this doesn't happen. Maybe you should rethink this. Um, 
And so, you know, with respect to their immediately what they should do, those are the things I point to. When you talk about, you know, keeping, you know, what kind of position do you want and, and how will you keep enthusiastic about it and wanting to do it? You know, people are, are different one from the other. Um, most of my uh, uh, graduate students have wanted careers in academia, but a, a few very good ones haven't. Uh, at, at least uh, two of them were very certain that they wanted three actually, that they wanted careers in conservation doing things on the ground or advising doing things, probably with NGOs. And a third one would consider academia, but only if the academic job could be doing things, not, not just doing research that is more or less ivory tower and involves publishing. And, and these, all three of these were really good students. And um, so we talked at some length about what would be a ladder that would get you there? And how would you, um, you know, what would be the next step to undertake? And what sorts of publications should you be aiming towards or other products that would be both relevant to what you want to do and would be visible to entities that, that might help you, you know, toward your goal? I have a student right now who's doing something that I've never heard of before. And she, she is a very talented student who knows a huge amount about um, uh, invasive insects and invasive plants. And as an undergraduate did actual research on invasive insects on invasive plants and came to me to work on invasive insects on invasive plants. And she's the one who started to work on Hemlocleidelgid but you know, the pandemic killed it. And meanwhile, she'd already been thinking and working about uh, other things. And she decided that what she wants to do is to found and direct an entity that will at, at first be at least regional and ultimately probably national, that will get people to plant native plants, not invasive plants. And she's been heavily influenced, you know, by by me because I talk about that a lot, including my course, and by Doug Tallamy, whose work you may have read, uh, you know, especially his most recent book. And we talked at great length about how she could do that. And to make a long story short, while she's getting her PhD, she's also getting an MBA here in our business school, which has a program for NGOs, believe it or not. For, uh, you know, it has a couple of faculty who specialize in how you actually get an NGO off the ground, get it to work, what steps you have to go through, the legal aspects, the financial aspects, and it'll it'll end up taking her longer than it would have just to do the PhD in ecology, which she is doing and involves invasive plants, but it's so I'm it's the first one certainly at the, at Florida's at Ten, University of Tennessee. No one has ever done anything like that before in my department. And everyone thinks, well, you know, that sounds interesting. It'll certainly accomplish something big if she can do it, but uh, well, what do we do about this? So it's pretty idiosyncratic and it depends on 
what a person's life goals really are. But um, we go into great detail about that. And it's not always just doing bigger and better ivory tower research of the sort that I've sort of specialized in. No, I think that's a, I think that's great advice. And I, th I think that's a great note to leave the conversation on. Um, Dr. Simbaloff, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Good talking. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.